Now with that, let us go to the Word of God. The passage for this afternoon is found in Revelation chapter 20. We are approaching the end of Revelation, just two more chapters. I'll be reading the first three verses for us this afternoon. The word of the Lord reads this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We have come across a portion of Revelation. And I think I say this often in, as we have journeyed through Revelation. A text that is um, of much controversy. That there's much division in the scholastic world. And, those who are uh, writing commentaries on the books. Why? Because it is so vague. And I think that is the nature of the book. This is why we have so many interpretations on Revelation. I mean, we have interpret different various interpretations on almost every doctrine in Christendom. But none can be said um, about this book Revelation. There's no other book that causes more contention and division because of how it is written. As I mentioned before, what we have to understand is the, the perspective or the view of revelation in which we are going through is uh, based upon a very figurative and symbolic interpretation so that we are not to take everything literally. So when we talk about the beast, when we talk about how many years the, uh, the beast must reign and whatnot, that they are not to be taken literally. And so we have here now another example of this. The millennial reign of Christ. Millennium, a thousand. So we have the thousand year of Christ mentioned in this chapter. There is no mention of the millennial reign of Christ anywhere else in Scripture. It is only found in the book of Revelation and only found here in the latter portion of Revelation, in chapter 20. That the question is this, and this is what is continued to be uh, debated within the Christian circle. Two questions. Is the thousand years literal? But then secondly, when will the millennium, millennial reign of Christ take place? And I want to tackle the second question first. When will it take place? 
Well, in order to answer this question, we have to understand that there are actually three prominent views pertaining to this question. We have premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. What is what are these three? Well, let's tackle the first one, premillennialism. Premillennialism is a doctrine that holds that Christ will return right before a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. And so they take the 1,000 years to be literal, and they say that Christ will return before then to take his throne. And the timing of it will take place after the seven-year tribulation. So they hold that the great tribulation that we read in Revelation is literal seven years that we get from the book of Daniel. And this is a brand in which we call dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. And this is the timeline of um, dispensational premillennialism. The rapture is going to take place before the tribulation. So all the horrible things that we read about in Revelation, the bowls, the trumpets, the scrolls, this doctrine holds to the belief that the church will be taken up into the air. There will be a secret rapture of the church so that when the tribulation happens, the church will not be on the earth. And then after the seven-year tribulation, that is when Christ comes back. This is the, the event that we read about in chapter 19, the rider on the white horse. And when he comes back, he will come back with the raptured saints. And then take his place on the earth. Now what is interesting about this view is one, it is the most popular, widely held view in current Christianity. You go to any church in America, especially here in America, 8 out of 10 will hold to this view. Dispensational premillennialism, a literal, literal interpretation of the book of eschatology of end times. But another interesting fact about this doctrine or this view of eschatology it is that it is very recent. Before the 1800s, the church never held to this view. It was foreign to the church. It was a birth by a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. He was an English preacher who served much of his time in Ireland. And this was his brand of eschatology. And this is what he had to offer to the world. And this is what he taught when he was preaching in Ireland. And he preached this for some years, but his theology didn't really take off until a young girl in his church 
had a vision and had a vision that the rapture would actually take place before the tribulation. And so he knew that this was a sign from God and then preached it to the whole world. And he did crusades in America. Which influenced a lot of, uh, a lot of the believers in America. But why do we hold in contemporary Christianity hold to this view more than any other view? The idea of revelation is something that will happen in the future. Well, because the first study Bible, not, I'm not talking about a Bible, but the, the first ever printed study Bible was influenced by Darby's teachings. It is the Schofield Bible. And the first ever... So, what is a study Bible? If you ever picked up a study Bible, they have notes on the bottom, you know, on the margins, they show you, oh, this is... Uh, this verse is related to a passage in this other book. They cite other passages. And so that was what the first study Bible presented to the world. This idea. And so it is no wonder that almost every Christian in America holds to this futurist view of Revelation. And that thousand-year reign, the literal thousand-year reign is going to happen in the future. And of course, it has been popularized by the Left Behind series, which literally took off. It was a global phenomenon. But of course, you guys know, we did not preach, or I did not preach through this, through this lens. But we have another view. What's post-millennialism? Well, they hold that the thousand years is not literal. So much closer to the idealist view that we have been going through. So it's not a literal thousand years. It's figurative language. So it just means a very long time. You guys remember when we went over the 144,000, it is not a literal 144,000. 12 by 12, 12 times 12 times 1,000. And 1,000 during the ancient, in, in the ancient world, equivalent to infinity. Just think of infinity or think of gazillion, right? Just an insane amount. And so it is a, a, a figurative but a long span of time in which there will be a golden age of the church. What is this? That the church, as, as uh, time progresses, will gain heights and success and prosperity. That that is what the thousand years is to represent. And they believe because the, the church is preaching the gospel to the the whole world, that the world is going to actually be getting better and better and better. And once it's reached its, its ultimate paramount, 
That is when Christ will return. That Christ will return once the church has finished its work and gained its prosperity and success in evangelism and preparing the way for Christ. But Christ's return on the earth is little. That they take that to be literal too. So that is what they share with the premillennialists. How about uh, millennialism? Now this is the view that um, we are uh, walking through. And what does this view hold? One. It is not a literal thousand years. Of course, I've already established that. But it is also not a literal earthly reign of Christ. That Christ will not come down and rule literally on this earth. And this is the idealist view. So if Jesus Christ isn't going to come literally on the earth, and it isn't a literal thousand years, when is this going to happen? Uh, that is the next question. Where do we put this in the timeline of church future? The temptation we have when we are trying to pinpoint uh, placement of events in, in in its chronological order, is uh, reading through Revelation through a Western mindset. So we are in chapter 20. We are at the end of, all, nearing the end of Revelation. So because we are at the end of the closing of Revelation, we are tempted to think automatically, ah, then this thousand years must take place at the end, it must take place after Christ comes back, because that's the passage that comes that precedes it. And this is how we automatically think. This is a very Western mindset. And so when you read a book, this is how it is structured. And this is how our mind is structured. But the, but the book of Revelation is not written that way. I told you guys. When you read through the book of Revelation, what you see is a pattern of repetition. Of retelling. So, the scrolls and the trumpets and the bowls, they are not three distinct series of judgments by God, but rather the retelling of, of, of the same event, the judgment of God, and just told through different perspectives. So instead of um, seeing Revelation, seeing the, the, the the pattern of the storyline going like linear, just think of it as just circles, right? It's just retelling of the same story, just from different perspective. 
or even using different pictures. Again, the visions of the, the dreams of Daniel that was revealed to him. Well, one was the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, another one was Daniel's dream. Same event. So, if it is not a literal thousand years, and not a literal earthly reign of Christ, that he will uh, rule in Jerusalem, when does this take place? Because after we can't erase it from Scripture. The, ideal, the idealist view holds that this took place or the impetus was when Christ resurrected and the church age was born. So the thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ the starting point was in the book of Acts with the birth of the church and the church submitting to now the rulership of Christ himself. And we know it's not literal because thousand years passed a long time ago. So we are still living in the millennial reign Christ. Christ is still living, is he not? And Christ is still the head of the church, is he not? And so, he is reigning at the same time that the tribulation is happening. As I told you guys before, we are living in the tribulation according to this view. Simultaneously, Christ being the head of the church. Let's go over this. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Well, if, it, if this is supposed to have uh, taken place at the resurrection and the impetus of the church, why is Satan still around? So what we have to understand is this is also figurative. The binding of Satan is not literally throwing him into the pit, but restricting him. Restricting the work of Satan while the church is on the earth. And restricting Satan from doing what? From completely obliterating the church. If Satan had his way, the book of Acts would have ended in chapter 1. It wouldn't have even gone to, to the end of the chapter. If Satan had his way, there would be no Christianity. God bound Satan so that during the church age, the gospel 
may be spread to the ends of the earth. And the very fact that our message has gone to almost every corner of the globe and people coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a testament to this. So we do not have to worry about the enemy. And I think it is written in this manner because he is of no concern to us. Satan is a defeated foe. And so too many people focusing so heavily on Satan, the works of Satan, demonology, oh, we're casting out demons. What are demons? The natures of demons. We should not be as redeemed people, placing heavily our attention on those things. Our mind should be elsewhere. Our mind should be on God. Our mind should be on Christ and about doing His will. And because Satan is bound and the works of the enemy are limited and they fall short, we will just be busy doing the work of God. That we will be busy doing the Father's business. But because Christ is the head of the church, we have nothing to fear. We have absolutely nothing to fear. So the church is Christ's kingdom on the earth. When we think of kingdom, we think of actual, literal civilizations on the earth. But we are a spiritual kingdom. And this was what Christ was referring to. Talking about the kingdom of God kingdom of Christ. So, where we are right now is a period called already but not yet. Already but not yet. Christ's kingdom has already been established on the earth, but it hasn't reached its fullness until the end. Until judgment day. And that is when we will see the height of the kingdom. It's full glory. So if it is in fact that we are part of a spiritual kingdom of Christ, where Christ is our king, what does that mean for us, the church? What does that mean? Well, first off, Christ, if he is indeed the king, the head of the church, he is the one who is doing the leading. We do not lead Christ. All authority has been given to Christ. All authority. And that includes his church, the
the church that he purchased himself with his shed blood. Colossians 1.18 He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head. He is the one making the decisions. He makes the final call. Now what is interesting about this, we say amen, but how we live our lives is completely opposite of what we profess. We have many people in the church who live the exact opposite. They lead Christ, or they attempt to lead Christ. They are the gods of their own life. So we have plans in our own lives. We have our own dreams and ambitions. And we lay them before God, not asking God to test our hearts and to see whether this is the actual will of His. But we, what do we do? We lay it before Him and say, Lord, help me with this. He is our personal genie. So who is leading who? Who is actually the head? Christ is the head. And the church as an institution should operate in that manner. This is why we pray. And when we pray, we ask the Lord to have His way with us. Lord Jesus, do what you will with your body. As I mentioned before, we who are members of that body should live as such in our own personal lives. This is the truth that our brothers and sisters in antiquity past, they died for this. They literally gave up their lives for this doctrine right here. I mentioned this individual again, but he's worth mentioning. John Huss, 15th century Bohemian theologian and pastor, modern-day Czech Republic. He lived a hundred years before Martin Luther and the Reformation period. So they refer to this man as the pre-Reformation reformer. Not only was he a pastor, but he was a dean of philosophy in, at the University of Prague. A well-educated man. Well, his preaching style caught the attention of the then very powerful Roman Catholic Church. And why was he in their radar? Because he was preaching to the people, one, in a manner in which they could understand. Before, I don't know if many of you guys remember, all sermons preached back then were preached in Latin. And how many people knew Latin? Only the highly educated, those part of the church. Common people knew absolutely nothing of Latin. 
to imagine how fruitful it was for them to actually sit in a service and listen to a sermon that isn't even in their own language. It's like you sitting in, going to a church from a different language and listening to the sermon. See how much you, you could get from it. So not only was he preaching in a language that they could understand and preaching through the Bible, which was exactly what the church, the Roman Catholic Church did not want uh, them to do. But he preached the supremacy of Christ. This is what got him in hot water. That Christ was in fact the head of the church and not the Pope. No human man takes the, the place of Christ. And when in 1412 he was excommunicated from the church he was serving in, he preached out in the fields. He would not stop preaching. But even then, more people came to hear because he was preaching the Word of God. He was preaching through the Bible and the supremacy of Christ. And then, 1415, he was sentenced to death and burned at the stake. All because he preached Christ is Lord. That Christ is the head of the church. This is how vital this doctrine is. On the Lordship of Christ. So it, it, it should change and affect the way you live your life. Be in complete submission to the king. In any nation where there is a monarchy, anyone that is below the king cannot tell the king or queen what to do. We have so switched the roles. And because of that, There is spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness in our churches. Spiritual deadness in our own lives. All because we have switched the order of how it is supposed to be. He is the head. Because of that, we take orders from Him. Every decision that we make, we lay it before God, not asking Him to bless it, but laying it down before God to see whether it is of His good will. Because we serve Him. He does not serve us. But secondly, because He is a King, He looks after those in his kingdom. 
a good king looks after the, the well-being of his citizens. And if we are the body and he is the head, he will care for us and protect us. I mean, think about it. During this whole pandemic, what have people been doing? Doing their best to protect their body. Wearing masks, social distancing, isolating. All for what? For health purposes. And Christ is doing that for His church, for His bride, for His body. There is continual protection by our good King. Because He is also the good shepherd. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord Jesus has his eye constantly on the church. And when I'm talking about the church, when you hear church, I hope you're not thinking of buildings. The church is the assembly, the assembly of believers. When I say church, I'm talking about you and I. His blood does not cover the buildings, but those who are redeemed. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a citizen, if you will, of His kingdom, you experience the great privilege of being under His protection. In times of trouble, turn to Him. In times of peace, thank Him. He is your all in all. He is your everything. And He is able. In His resurrection, he already displayed to the world that death and Hades cannot hold him. That's why in Revelation 1, Jesus says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. He is the great I am, the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. If he is for you, who can be against you? And he is constantly, constantly on watch, protecting his own, so that we do not have to walk in fear. If our mighty God is our shield, our defender, and he is fighting for us when we cannot, what do we have to fear? This is why we have a peace that this world cannot comprehend. We put our faith and trust in Him. And if He is our King, 
and we know his nature, his attributes, what he is actually capable of doing. We can invoke his name and receive that same power to have victories in this life. To go and make disciples of all nations, to see people's lives changed, seeing people giving their life to Christ and turning from death over to eternal life. All done by the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. There is no other name that carries that much weight, that carries that much power. It is by this name that corpses rise and has breath in their lungs. And we can have this same victory in our own personal lives. If He is indeed your King, If you have given him full authority, you have surrendered full authority, you have laid down your crowns before the mighty and worthy king. Understand that there can only be one king. Too many people make themselves rulers of their own lives. Because of that, life falls apart and when storms come they have nothing to hold on to because everything that they have held on to up to that point was just as flimsy as waves and, and the, the changing winds. And Jesus Christ is not a get out of jail card. He's not a free ticket to heaven that when you're in trouble and only when you're in trouble you can call on him and then everything will be okay. This is a king that desires a relationship with you. Though he is the head of the body, though he is the king and has supreme authority over your life, he is a good king and a personal king. And wants to give you many victories in But if you are not spending time with the king, your life will be swept away with the tides of life like everyone else. Remain under his divine protection. Stay connected to everlasting power 
give to him supreme authority. And you will just see how good our Lord and our King really is. For I, I do want to talk about the, the last portion of verse 3. But it says that Satan will be released after the thousand years have ended. So whenever this appointed time is, we do not know, only God knows. When the end of days approaches, the judgment day, Satan will be released to gather the nations, deceive the nations, and to wage war against Christ. And then afterwards, Satan will meet his bitter end, which we will get to later on. For all this to say that our future, our fate, written in stone, we win if we are in Christ. And we recognize him as king. Do that today if we haven't done so yet. Surrendering ourselves to the mighty King, Lord Jesus. Giving Him supreme authority over our lives, over our church, and every area and aspect of our lives so that we may receive the wonderful protection of the mighty King and Good Shepherd to experience many victories through the power of His glorious name.